Welcome to Day 2 Club. we got a sponsored show with Akamai today. Akamai is chatting with their customer, IBM Cloud. Yeah, that IBM Cloud, the one you've heard of, and their product, IBM Cloud Console, the thing that you would interact with if you're consuming IBM Cloud service. They had to rebuild this thing, soup to nuts, and went from monolith to microservices. But Ned, not just because microservices are so cool. No, and they were literally like repainting the airplane and redesigning the airplane while flying the darn thing. And they managed to get it done. They managed to land this sucker. Uh, And what was really important about it was they weren't just doing it because it was some new cool technology. They weren't adopting Kubernetes for Kubernetes sake. They were trying to solve real technical challenges they were having with their monolithic application by adopting microservices, by going to the edge and adding this complexity for real tangible benefits. And that's just, I love to see complexity being added for a good reason, as opposed to a fashionable one. So please welcome our guest nerds for the day, Pavel Despot, Senior Product Marketing Manager at Akamai, and his customer, Tony Irwin, Senior Technical Staff Member of the Architecture Team over at IBM Cloud. So Tony, I want to lead off the conversation uh, with you here. So this this conversation is about the IBM Cloud Console and its migration. You did some refactoring. Um, you you moved it uh, to a new platform. Okay, that's a lot. There's a lot going on there. So so to help the listeners understand the challenge, first of all, what, what does the IBM Cloud Console app do, and what were the big drivers that were forcing you to do with this migration? Sure. Yeah. Uh, thanks, Ethan. The the IBM Cloud Console is the uh, the web front end to IBM Cloud, and IBM Cloud provides you know IaaS and PaaS functionality and in a bunch of managed services for for AI and so IoT, etc. This would be and, the thing I, as an IBM Cloud consumer, would be interfacing with to consume IBM Cloud services. That is correct. Yeah, that is okay, correct. Okay. You know, there's also CLI and API, but this is really where people people start. We started off with a you know, number of years ago. Our first release was a totally monolithic application, you know, Java server side. And uh, we're using a, a single page app on the, on the front end with the Dojo uh, toolkit. There are a lot of things that were good early on, but but we really struggled with some of the monolithic, some of the aspects of the monolithic architecture. If code was fragile, easy to break things, resiliency problems, difficult to deploy, updates, uh, hard for other teams. We wanted to make this more open system for IBM across IBM to plug into, you know, that, that was difficult. We were kind of locked into a, a technology stack and, and, and performance was a big issue for us. So, uh, so we knew we needed to find a better way to scale and, uh, and handle these things. And, and so we started looking to microservices uh, and you know, refactoring. One of the first of many uh, replatforming, refactoring activities uh, was starting to break that monolith down into to microservices. Yeah, I was going to say this sounds like all the classic monolith kinds of challenges, especially when you go to scale. And so, so you already answered my next question. You wanted to move to microservice. So, so Pavel, I want to turn kind of the same question over to you. So, you end up being the platform that IBM is looking to to host Cloud Console. How, how did that all fit in? The it started very much like a commerce kind of approach, meaning a commerce site kind of approach, meaning that performance, especially given monolithic apps, was very much a, a common issue with them. Uh, not being distributed, as, as most of them aren't, performance was a huge issue. And even though this didn't necessarily have maybe the same abandonment issues, if my onload event doesn't fire enough quickly or if my screen doesn't paint, 
but it, it was directly, it is directly associated with customer SAP. Um, to your point, if Ethan, if you go in there and interact with the CLI with the docs and it's pokey, people tend to not be particularly happy, especially when you're trying to set up, you know, five VMs and a bunch of security groups and so forth. Um, so that's how we really got started and approached. And we took the usual kind of performance approach to it, which was for static content that can be cacheable, cache it, distribute it across by running it through the CDN, it automatically gets distributed across thousands of locations around the world. That helped with the static content. The next thing we had to look at was other non-cacheable types of content. Uh, what can we do there? API calls, right? As Tony mentioned, as we started splitting things off, API calls off, these things generally aren't cacheable. So we started looking at, at ways to accelerate both the API calls and to help the UI render more quickly, right? Starting really to dig in there and get the user to be able to start interacting with the page as quickly as possible. Uh, and then I think the last piece, the third piece, as we were getting into in earnest in the, the splitting of microservices is just all the routing, which became a really core piece, that routing logic, uh, that failover, you know, how is it, how does one define performance? Where do you want it to go? Can I send it anywhere? Are there geo restrictions? Is GDPR a thing? Spoiler, it was. So um, that was how we started, right? As purely, wouldn't say purely performance, but we started really focusing on that. And then we moved to really help support all the work Tony and team were doing to develop all these microservices from a, from a routing failover and availability perspective. So we had our Java monolith in, in a couple data centers at the time, and, and, and we just wanted to put our node uh, apps in, in the same data centers, um, uh, you know, so two or three at the time and kept kept expanding. Um, but we also had to run, uh, we couldn't just stop and, and rewrite the monolith and start over. Um, we had, you know, actual users, we had you know, offering managers and execs at IBM wanting new function as well. Um, so we had to, we had to find a way to balance, um, you know, keeping what we had kind of running alongside our new microservices, and, and we kind of did that for you know really a couple years until we finally got rid of of, of our monolith uh, completely. But right. the short answer is it's still still everything deployed to to IBM Cloud. Um, we changed you know, at some point along the way. We we changed from Cloud Foundry to Kubernetes. Um, using the IBM Cloud Kubernetes service, and and so you know that was also kind of a rearchitecture. Um, but ultimately, today we're uh, you know running in like nine to ten uh, IBM Cloud data centers uh, using Kubernetes. And one of the things that we know, since uh, Pavel's here, uh, is that you, as IBM, decided to go with Akamai to host at least portions of the cloud console. And I'm curious why you, you chose that. You, you had stuff in your data centers. And I think of Akamai as a CDN primarily. So I, you said you didn't have CDN. Okay, that makes sense. But was, was there more to it than just the CDN component of Akamai? And maybe Pavel, you want to jump in on, on some of that as well. Yeah, yeah, and well, just just to say, we we didn't change where we ho we didn't start hosting anything on Akamai. Um, Ak Akamai was you know became more of an overlay, really, on top of of you know the hosting that was done on on, on IBM Cloud. And at our first 
our first interest, you, you know, as I mentioned a few minutes ago, the performance, um, we were very concerned about performance of, of all of our downloading all of our static resources and things. So that, that was a big reason we started looking for, for CDN um, capabilities. And uh, so we started working with Pavel and team. And uh, you know, as we got into it, we found Akamai had a lot of cool things <laughs> besides CDN. Um, and, you know, and I'll let Pavel talk more about that, but, but like, the, <clears throat> excuse me, the Kona security suite and, you know, to help with DDoS protection and, you know, all, all that kind of stuff. And, and, and Pavel, I don't know if you, you, you could talk better about all of the, the cool things that Akamai provides. Yeah, you're absolutely right. It definitely started around performance, right? We really looked at it in, in two ways. One was just the absolute load time. Right, because understood that this isn't quite your usual commerce site where you directly are tying abandonment and cart click through and all that kind of stuff to performance. But at the same time, go to a console and try to start up a bunch of clusters and issue a bunch of CLI commands and get some documentation and have it be pokey and see how happy you are about that general service. Um, right so okay so not an e-commerce site like i'm not you know buying a pair of shoes it's i'm consuming ibm cloud web services through the console performance still matters card abandonment is potentially a thing if it's too slow i see um so while may not you know while i'd say maybe the the direct kpis didn't matter we looked at it very much as as a user experience thing so of course right to your point having started off as cdn the low hanging fruit given that we initially started with more concentrated data centers is like, hey, look, we got to get the static content out there. Um, so that was, you know, the flip it on and whatever we could cache. And of course, there's requirements on, you know, can you cache this? Can you not? Is this script public domain? Is it all those different things? But once we worked through, that was obviously from a performance standpoint, when you're looking at a you know, user experience problem. That's the first thing we, we looked at. Pavel, when you were talking about those static images, that's bread and butter CDN stuff. Now, did yes. that did that content live in just the 10 data centers that we mentioned earlier, or was that actually spread globally and it kind of it didn't really matter so much what data center it came from? Um, the latter, it was initially, you know, when we had Dallas and I think London came next and I think Sydney, yep. um, you know, initially it was two or yep. three data centers where those data centers were, you know, and that monolith serving up all that static content. Um, it didn't matter by virtue of kind of putting quote unquote, the CDN in front of it. Um, as soon as somebody requested it, it's, it's there and populated and distributed. So back to your question, um, I think it was Ethan, uh, back to your question, where was it just, where was the application? The second you put in caching, right. Especially, you know, 4,400 location distribution caching, you have some content there automatically, automatically. Oh, wait a minute now. That's interesting because when you say static content on a website, I'm thinking there's a bunch of kind of objects that are pretty static throughout a website, with pictures and some scripts and things like that. But you're talking about some of the guts of the application could have been distributed that way as well? Um, potentially, yeah. So certainly the low-hanging fruit was the static images and CSS. Um, at the time, we didn't we didn't start with that because the next thing we did was start looking at HTML optimizations for performance it was a pretty hefty framework. So there were a number of things beyond caching that we could do to the UI to make it render faster. Um, so we went through a whole set of tuning things there. They were generally called at the time, the, the, uh, the term that everyone loved to use was front end optimization techniques. 
you know, JavaScript yeah. minification, all, all that other kind of fun stuff. So that was the next step where we went for performance. We had a pretty good amount of, of uh, JavaScript running on our pages. So you can kind of think of, if you're caching JavaScript out there somewhere, you can kind of think of, of at least the JavaScript uh, being part of your application that, that I guess now is hosted uh, you know, outside of IBM Cloud, both places sure. really. Yep. And that that front end optimization you're talking about, did that require code changes by IBM to the cloud console? Or is that something you could take what the cloud console was giving you from the origin, transform it a little bit on the Akamai side and then distribute it out to clients? The latter. That was using the kind of initialing of edge compute, right? When you're not just going to say proxy, cache, um, admittedly in more infant stages, but look at it and go, oh, okay, I can minify on the fly or I can start doing uh, image adaptation, right? In a world before WebP and some of these other formats, um, this started looking at, hey, is it compressible? Um, if it is, then maybe, and I'm on a slow connection, which we can also detect through logic, uh, compress that image, or if it's a PNG, right, turn it to a JPEG, that kind of thing. So you're starting to see the inklings of maybe not compute in the traditional sense where I package up some code in a container or a function and deploy. But even back then, there was that logic to, back to your point, to not have to make Tony change the code in the monolith, because that was never going to happen for the reasons that we just heard 10 seconds ago. Um, so we couldn't really change anything, especially not until, you know, the common UI was split out and then, you know, rainbows and, and unicorns and everything. But at the time, um, and there were a few things that just didn't work out. You know, things like um, we tried asyncing some JavaScripts, right, to help your onload timers. Because, um, again, before, before the recent Google timers, that was what you looked at. You look at onload and time to interactive. Um, and we found that some of those techniques just wouldn't work with um, with the structure of the site and with the, the client-side library. So we just had to abandon it. Okay. And to what degree were you giving feedback to the IBM team as they re-architected their application saying, hey, you know, with our service and the way that we can optimize things, if you make these code changes, it'll actually improve the performance of your app? I think we worked pretty closely together. I mean, I think by the time Tony brought us in right here, he had a vision, he and his team already had a vision of like, Hey, no, this monolith is going to be slowly <laughs> carved up into pieces. Um, but definitely on the performance side initially, right. Is how do we do this? Right. Because like we said, caching is, is easy. Well, it's easy when you have a bunch of servers to distribute the, the stuff everywhere. Um, but there's a lot of other things. So we talked to him a lot about that. There were a lot of back and forth, like, hey, can you can you change this script? Like, hey, when we async it or when we defer the execution, like the whole page, it doesn't render. And, and they'd look at it and go, yeah, we can't do that. So there was a lot of that back and forth. Um, but then later, I'd say, especially during the, the services, during the splitting up, that's when we really worked together to get into the routing and like, Hey, move this, unite the host names, that example, Tony, that you mentioned earlier with Flash Catalog um, and having all these proxies, how do we manage all that? Because remember, we started with Dallas, London, and Sydney, and now it's like 10 data centers, and I don't even know how many clusters. Um, <laughs> and you know what? I mean, one thing related to what Pavel was saying there, in case it's not clear, it, Every once we had Akamai in place, every single request that went to a console host name goes through Akamai first. 
right? So the so this includes the static resources. It also includes all of our API calls. So 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 basically, Akamai sounds too simple, but becomes a proxy <laughs> for uh, for our you know hosted the stuff we're hosting in IBM Cloud. Essentially, we've got this big proxy out there that can do do a lot of cool things. So I got a question here about about all of this. I'm listening to this process. It's a live app, um, cloud console needs to be accessible by the users. You're doing a major architecture backend revision. You're moving components around to different parts of the planet effectively uh, as different things are broken off, turned into a microservices and redeployed. How did you keep all of this live while migrating this? Seriously, how did you actually pull that off? Because in my mind, this would be like, nope, we're going to have a flag day or a hard cutover day, and we're going to move to the new thing, and it's all going to be great. But this gradual migration thing sounds impossible. It wasn't easy, um, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and, and with that and, and all the things, uh, you know, the, you know, inherent about being on the cloud and microservices. And, you know, I, sometimes I joke if we, if we had known everything we were going to encounter along the way that uh, maybe we, we just <laughs> wouldn't have done it. <laughs> and that's not entirely true, but, uh, but we definitely learned how hard we didn't know what we didn't know at the time. And we learned how, how hard it was, you know, and, and Pavel can talk, some too about like, you know, Akamai has a staging network and, and those sorts of things, but we did a lot of POCs. I mean, you know, our first set of, when we first had microservices and, you know, started having the monolith and microservices running separately, we would have a separate deployment of that, for example, it really run side by side the other one, but we weren't sending real user traffic to it yet. Right. So we were able to kind of test and see it was doing what we wanted to do. And then, you know, by, by the end of that, fast forward, we end up basically ended up just changing where the host name pointed to, right? Instead of pointing to the original monolithic app, when we felt the uh, the the microservice beginning was better, we basically just flipped the host name. That's more okay. simple. That makes it sound more simple than it was, perhaps. <laughs> but uh, well, I think, in, though, in the, to your point, from the routing standpoint, it was way more. You had the way harder job than the routing because to your point right the, these this globally distributed proxy if you wanted to switch slash catalog not to keep beating this example to death but sorry um if you wanted to swing <laughs> slash catalog over right you could just literally blink out your origin online and set up another set of cube clusters or whatever you want and just point the entire world to the other thing and if it didn't you rolled it back and that service didn't even have to exist, right? At the edge, you could even just say failover, you know, and I'm sorry, page, not that anyone wants a, you know, fail will. But, you know, worst case scenario, right? You could mitigate that versus if you didn't have that additional layer. I, I, I liked your, your term there, Tony. If you didn't have that additional layer and, you know, your elastic IP or whatever just blinks out of existence or your ELV is gone, like it, it's gone. Um, until that comes up and until you roll it back and until you update your DNS versus client DNS never really changed. Um, you would have to be an extremely, extremely astute and, you know, security minded person to even start figuring out that that origin, sorry for the CDN term, but that, that catalog, right, where that service was changed. Um, and, and that's kind of the nice thing, right? So it makes it gives him more flexibility to, to swing traffic over. Now, of course, the back end of that and, and synchronizing services and any persistent data is, is a different nightmare that I'll let Tony <laughs> ruminate over. Um, <laughs> but, you know, at least that one wasn't an issue um, as much, I think. 
the other thing that I found, just from my perspective, I think the way we always had the environments, uh, your you know QA dev, you know, prod dev staging, and using that in conjunction with you know the staging and production networks of the of the edge. I think that that really worked well because essentially we always had the lower environments where we tested everything out, and even then, right? Because you don't want to break staging on people. So if you may, if you did anything on Akamai, you can all right, okay, fine. We we didn't mess anyone up. Let them test, do all their whatever tests they need to do. Copy it over to the you know to the other environment. Do the same thing, and then when you're ready, just activate in production and say during this maintenance window you will just globally activate this new Akamai configure, whatever. And if you want to go back, then you just go back similarly business as you did low balancing. So I think the use of the higher layer environments helped um, us find, I know we found a few issues like that. Right. And in terms of maintenance window, I guess I would point out our, our goal was always, you know, zero downtime during all of this. So, uh, so, so we didn't, you know, sometimes you'll go to a website and say, well, we're, we're under maintenance for the next hour or whatever. And, you know, that was maybe more common back then, but you still see it today, right? I'll get email from such and such website that they're going to take downtime. We never wanted to take downtime. And, you know, that, that was our big goal. So, you know, with, with, with the host name stuff we've talked about here, we, we were able to do that without, assuming we didn't break the Akamai config when we deployed it <laughs> to production, <laughs> which, you know, I guess, I guess we should, you know, if we admit it, we we may have done that a time or two, <laughs> too. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but uh, uh, but otherwise, you know, uh, it, it should it should just uh, just work. You know, in, well, in theory, I mean, I'm you said host name yeah. and using DNS host names to uh, deal yeah. with the cutover, which I, that's I, I've used that method a bunch of times too. Which is, it's fraught with peril because of. Oh, a lot of times it's as simple as cache, whether or not TTLs are honored by the DNS client and, you know, and so on. So, so a point of clarification here, when you're talking about host names and changing host names, are you talking about when you were cutting over a service, keeping the same host name and updating the IPs that might respond for that host name or uh, actually using a brand new host name that was, you know, pointing that service to, uh, to somewhere in Akamai and, um, you know, dealing with that in code perhaps so that the, the user or client would never have to deal with that. The client would see the same thing. They would never see a change in host name. Um, clients change IPs all the time based on where edge networks route and where you're fastest and all that, but that would never have changed. What was changed was just, you know, a new endpoint, DNS or set of IPs where you go into the edge and say, okay, as of now, when I click, okay, start sending it to this. Well, we recommend FQDN as best practice, but start sending it to this endpoint, right? Let's not hard code our IPs. Let's not take step backwards, but uh, yeah, update your FQDN programmatically or through the UI. And, and that's where it goes when you click. Okay. Right. Right. So the client's not involved in that routing no, no, no. decision. Yeah. No. As far as they're concerned, nothing has changed, but you're handling the routing on the back end and just following whatever the update is from IBM. So it's, it's more programmatic than you're waiting for a DNS uh, host name to cash out. Correct, because right, to your right. point, um, to your point, Ethan, I, I am convinced that people just remove the code of DNS uh, TTL adherence in every proxy <laughs> I've ever run into. Well, exactly, yeah, it's been so painful. You try to bleed off your connections to the old service, you can light up the new one and cut everybody over to it. It's like, why are they all sticking to the old service? Do they not honor TTLs? And the answer is no, actually they don't. No, they don't, no, yeah. they don't. And then especially if you're trying to do only layer three, four DNS load balancing, but topic for another 
for another podcast, perhaps. <laughs> so you have this application. It's very complicated. You've gone through the migration process. And I'm curious, and now we can kind of get into the architecture of what's going on in the Akamai side. Uh, walk me through what happens now when a client requests a connection to the cloud console. How does that whole connection process start? And what are all the kind of layers that it walks through? Sure. I think I like the term proxy because that is a technically accurate term of what it does. It, it proxies the connection. The difference between having a, a Node.js or an Nginx in your VPC is functionally still a proxy, but just move it down the street from me and from you and from everyone else. And think of the technical, think of how it works is the same way. When I type in cloud.ibm.com, DNS happens, of course, and not to be too elementary, but the short story is that all these 330,000 servers you hear of, you will get an IP for one of those, right? Me here in Cambridge, Tony in Austin, you folks in wherever you are. Um, so that's always the first step. And that would be the same step if your Nginx happened to be in your VPC, right? You get an IP address, hosting results. Um, if you look at any Akamai website, dig on Akamai.com, you'll see just like most CDNs, you do that through DNS. But the short story is user connects to the edge. Now, back when you start, which is very close, especially as especially for Akamai, very close to the user. Now, when we started, of course, what would happen? I would just ask for my GeoCities JPEG, right? I'd ask <laughs> for the HTML and all that good stuff and the page loaded. Uh, or even for videos, right? My MP4s, I would say, you know, get me nfl.com slash video.mp4. And then I get it and I'd wait forever, but it was a lot faster because I was only getting it close. That still holds true today. Of course, we have to deal with things that aren't these static objects, but that first part is still the same. And that the fact that that first part is still the same is really what let us do this migration and the flow because the user connects to us, to Akamai, to the edge server. Um, and we will allow connections to every any server you tell us, we'll give it certs, all the usual HTTP stuff. And then from there, we have the ability to cache the request, forward it, scan it for security. Uh, if it's an image, we can optimize the image because again, it's a proxy, just a very distributed one. So back to your question of, how does it flow? User connects to the website, DNS resolution, user's browser or, or client, right? We shouldn't say browser because it's not just a CDN. Same thing holds true for my phone, right? When it's using Akamai to make API calls, it connects to that edge server. And that as a proxy with all these functions, we can then handle that request to route it or respond on the behalf of the service and increasingly, right, even run some compute to respond. But that's how the client looks at it. All of this with HTTPS, it goes without saying. Um, so before I get pilloried, when I say HTTP, <laughs> by default, it is HTTPS, TLS 1, 2, or higher because we are all security-minded people. Okay, okay. And so once the client has connected in, all right, I'm, I'm at the Edge server. And then the Edge server is going to make probably, uh, at least hopefully, intelligent decisions about where to send the various requests for the different components of the application. Sure. Because I'm guessing, uh, you know, we've got 10 data centers to choose from. Does the edge server then say, oh, okay, you're, you're connecting from Austin, and I see there's a data center in Dallas, so I'm going to route you there as opposed to send you over to Sydney. Is that part of what Akamai does, or is that something that 
IBM tells you to do? Um, so it is part of what Akamai does based on what we're trying to accomplish. Given performance, um, that is obviously the best way to go because you can say, all right, I know you're here. Here's the best performing data centers out of the umpteen that you've configured. Automatically send it there unless the health check fails and reroute and do all that good stuff. Um, however, not all services, uh, micro though they may be, are stateless. Uh, sometimes we have to consider state. Mm. Sometimes we have to consider sessions and stick services to a certain place. So that changes slightly what you just described because maybe on the first request you go, yeah, he, person's in Austin, Dallas is the best one to send it. But next request and the third and any subsequent request, if there is logic that, hey, this is a session, even if Austin become, or even if Dallas becomes not the best performance anyway, it has to go there. Right? Right. That's where the session's been established. Um, so basically my point in saying that is we, we would work with all the different individual services to say, hey, look, if flat out performance is all you need, great. Yeah, we can do this and you know, really easy. Just put in your IPs and we'll sort it out. But does the application allow you to do that with traffic? Because if it doesn't, uh, we still did it, but then you take the approach of pick the first, pick anyone out of session, goes to fastest. Anyone in session as indicated by a cookie or a query string parameter or whatever used to indicate session, usually one of those two, um, then stick that to the target um, because you don't want the person to have to necessarily re-log in or, or you know, have state be replicated across your data centers or whatever, whatever you had to do that was driving that requirement. That's, that's an interesting question. Could you, as a future development, a future improvement, move that state from Dallas to the edge? So now if a new session does have to be created because Dallas is down, not that that would happen, right, Tony? Dallas doesn't go down, but like- <laughs> It doesn't. <laughs> if, 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 you know, six backhoes cut all the fiber to Dallas, uh, in a massive protest. Big F5 tornado comes through or yeah. something. Yeah. Why not? <laughs> days, yeah. um, is that something where then the edge server could be holding that session, that state, and then just route it to a different uh, location, assuming the logic there on both sides of the app? You bring up a topic that is extremely dear to me. Um, so <laughs> at the time, we had no such approach. Uh, we had no way to distribute any sort of data structured or unstructured across the edge, um, aside from caching, of course, mm -hmm. right? Which we will agree to just call objects and, and not pull on that thread. But we had no other way to do that short of putting a service somewhere in, in a cloud provider, which being the edge was silly. Uh, these days though, uh, and I'm not necessarily suggesting it works for everything because you still have to call it, but there is the ability to have a distri globally distributed key value store across the edge. So before you remember, we said it's a proxy and, and it handles HTTP and WAF and DDoS and image manipulation, all that. Um, additionally, there is this notion of a key value store, a globally distributed key value store. And some of the places that we've seen interest in some of the applications of that is for session ID, uh, think access control, think content access, um, media 
folks, people have streams, that sort of thing. People have logins um, to kind of centrally centrally manage the auth. So the, the auth endpoint that you have in your cloud authenticates you once the edge season goes, okay, endpoint said, fine, store that it's fine. So you don't have to go checking with it constantly. Um, right. And that's what requires that ability to distribute, right. Your key, your user key and your auth token and, and, and whatever else. But at the time, uh, no, we, we, we couldn't do that. Right. That brings up a great uh, point, though, because if you can do that, if you can say, hey, IBM service, I want you to trust the Akamai edge points. Those edge points are allowed to hold a token or an author authentication. Now you can cache that at the edge. And if I have to connect to a different location, as long as it trusts that same endpoint and says, yep, I see you have the token. That's a valid token. And I trust you as a source for that token. Now the user doesn't have to log or a client doesn't have to log in again because that token's being cached for them. That's that's a pretty cool use case. I like that. Yeah. And then we're already going down the path, right, for, for some layer three, four stuff because we've already got, especially once you enable security and everything, we've already got in the allow lists on most layer three, four firewalls, right? On ingress, people will put the IP addresses of the edges in their allow list. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you've already got some degree of trust um, established, especially if you're doing that allowed deny list. Um, you know, some people also use mutual auth, but, you know, who doesn't love managing certs? Um, <laughs> so, yeah, so you're already kind of going down that road. I think just like you're seeing with with the functions and some of the other stuff beyond caching, it's obviously going to go up the stack. Right, you're doing key value pairs, so obviously you're going to do some some compute, and it's never going to be you know my XXL you know five GPU instance, but you know that's that's not what this architecture is for. So Tony, I got a question for you. Knowing what you know now, sure. having having done this whole migration, are, are there some things you would have changed about the migration process? Handled some things differently, maybe? Um. Yeah, probably. Um, <laughs> I know uh, it definitely brought some new challenges along. I mean, I think we, we I think we really underestimated pipelines, for example, um, CI/CD pipelines. Um, you know, you you make a change, you redeploy the whole thing, um, and we really had one team contributing. Um, if you have teams from throughout IBM contributing and want to be able to deploy their microservices on their own schedules changes the pipeline quite a lot, right? Um, compared to, to how it worked with the monolith. Um, now, nowadays, we've, I feel like we have a really, really good pipeline, um, but, but that was something that we probably underestimated earlier. Monitoring and, and troubleshooting <laughs> was, was a big issue. Now, now instead of, you know, you know, if there's a problem in the monolith, it's like, okay, let's go look at the monolith logs and, you know, look at the monolith code. Um, but then, you know, once once you have microservices, it's like, well, which microservice is having a, having problems? And one one thing about being a console is, you know, you're, you're kind of the canary in, in the mine shaft. Um, sometimes you'll start experiencing problems in the cloud before, uh, before even the responsible team <laughs> starts seeing them. And, uh, and certainly if someone has a problem, they come to the console team first, right? And say, well, why is the console broken? I can't log in or I can't get m- my list of resources. And, and, and being able to, uh, it, it became a matter of self-preservation really <laughs> to, to get a better system in place to uh, you know, be able to just simple things like 
like looking at all of our inbound and outbound uh, requests and see, well, okay, this API call to this cloud service is failing every, every time, right? It's not a console problem, so to speak. It's, it's you know, we need to get that service team working on it. And, and of course, when those things would happen, we would be like, well, what can the console do to better be better resilient to that API call failure? And so, so it was always, you know, always trying to, to improve those things a lot because we had so many developers from across IBM, uh, you know, we called UI plugins, we would call them, uh, you know, so, so say the Kubernetes service or the Watson or one of those teams wants to come in and provide a UI. How, how do they do that, right? Um, we got to the point where we couldn't handhold every single one of these teams that wanted to uh, to do this. So, so we ended up having to, you know, essentially develop a developer's toolkit <laughs> <laughs> uh, inside of, you know, IBM where we have, a you know, sample apps and best practices and, you know, the pipeline I mentioned and test frameworks and, you know, all, all that stuff really evolved um, over, over time um, as the need. Again, something that, you know, maybe we underestimated early on, but uh, of course you can only do so much <laughs> at once as well. Right. So all this was very agile and, uh, you know, just tried to try to make things better, better as we as we went. Right. It's certainly like uh, you had a lot going on already. You know? yep. Yep. Uh, and and right. it sounds like you still have a lot going on in terms of services and features that Akamai now has versus maybe what they had a few years ago. Is there anything that you would have architected or approached a little differently? Like, say, if that key value store had been available when you first started this migration, are there? Are there some things you think you might have adopted or done differently as part of the migration and re-architecting? Yeah, that, and I was thinking about the key value store a little bit while Pavel was talking about it, because I don't think we've talked extensively about it in the past. I mean, that that is kind of interesting. Um, I mean, because we try to make our applications very stateless as much as possible. But but as you alluded to, there's like, you know, user tokens and stuff sometimes that uh, just for efficiency's sake, we want to keep it in a local cache so that mm -hmm. you know when a request comes in it's like okay now we can use that user's token to call an api if, if we weren't somewhat sticky uh sticky sessions like like pavel mentioned for just you know flip-flopping around then we were able to handle that eventually but you know it, it would be a little bit more overhead if i switch from dallas to sydney <laughs> for some reason if that were to occur you know we'd have to call the back-end apis to get that token again essentially i mean we could use cookies and, and that sort of thing so you know, so it just added over overhead. So um, I, I can't think of a whole lot else we we keep in session state, but uh, I know we've we've been very careful not to. Uh, you know, we don't send our tokens to the browser even. You know, so would we put them in an external service? I'm not sure, but uh, it'd be it'd be interesting <laughs> to talk about. Well, well, I'm sorry if I just made more work for you, Tony. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Uh, um, yeah. Yeah. Everybody has always has more work for me. So. <laughs> I. Well, guys, this has been an absolutely fascinating conversation. And if if I'd like to give you a chance to summarize all of the goodness that we had in the conversation down to a few quick key takeaways for our audience, Pablo, why don't you get us started? Sure. So I think the first uh, the first main thing is that there are a ton of difficulties in migrating, both operationally, both logging and Moving some of that routing logic, moving some of that visibility to the edge really helped us um, with those difficulties. 
beyond that, as the microservices grow and there were more of them and we needed health checks, additional complexities, that logic where we made sure, where we managed all that load balancing, managed that failover for reliability was another big one. Um, and then ultimately, what we were able to do is, I think, set up a really good architecture for the progression and the growth down this whole architectural path of microservices. Awesome. Tony, any uh, final thoughts from you? Yeah, I mean, I mean, I would say we're definitely we're very happy with uh, the microservices uh, architecture, the migration to the microservices architecture. I, I think, you know, it, it addressed a lot of our problems. We had, you know, limited blast radius for changes. So it was easier for, for people to, you know, not break things, <laughs> put in code changes and not break things, um, increased resiliency, better performance, um, flexibility in technology. And I, and I could go on and on the benefits we we saw there. Um uh, it, it, and I guess the biggest thing, you know, you know, the relationship with Akamai has been been really good throughout all this. But, but I will say the the biggest thing that really improved our experience and 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 gave us the most uptime benefits. Um, microservices helped with that, but but using Akamai to be, do the geo load balancing, and so we could fail over to you know from one from an unhealthy data center to a healthy one. But that was just huge for us. And, uh, you know, so, so thanks Pavel for, for, for the help in making that happen. <laughs> you got it. Well guys, it's been a fun conversation. Um, the microservices conversation and it, when it works and then the problems that come up and how you solve those, uh, always keeping it real, keeping it real here on day two cloud. Uh, Pavel <laughs> question to you, if people want to dig in, find out more about this stuff, the things that Akamai has to offer and so on, where would you send them? I would send them to our recently launched shiny new Akamai.com slash packet pusher site um, to find out more. There's links. Uh, there is an even, I believe, a, a couple reference architectures and some of the uh, write-ups that we did with uh, Tony and uh, cloud.idm.com. Excellent. And if you go to the show notes, that'll be at day2cloud.io and packetpushers.net because we post the show in two places to make it even easier for you to find things. You're going to find that link, akamai.com slash packetpushers. You'll find some links about uh, cloud.ibm.com. Uh, you'll find a link to YouTube where Pavel is speaking on automatically load balancing and auto scaling services via Akamai APIs. Tony's got a blog that he wrote about a lot of this migration process that they did and so on. So there's plenty there for you to dig in and find more information. If you're a Twitter kind of a person, you can follow Akamai on Twitter and Tony Irwin is up there at Tony Irwin. These folks are on LinkedIn. And again, all that in the show notes at both day2cloud.io and packetpushers.net. Our thanks to Akamai for sponsoring today's show. And hey, listen to you, virtual high fives for tuning in. You're awesome. If you have a suggestion for future shows, we would love to hear them. Hit either Ned or I up on Twitter. We are both monitoring the at day two cloud show Twitter account, which you should follow. And if you're not a Twitter person, hey, go to Ned's fancy website, nedinthecloud.com. Fill out the form there and let us know that next show you'd like to hear. Did you know that you don't have to scream into the technology void alone? The Packet Pushers Podcast Network has a free Slack group, and it is open to everyone. Visit packetpushers.net slash Slack and join. It is a marketing-free zone for engineers to chat, compare notes, tell war stories, and solve problems together. Again, that's packetpushers.net slash Slack. And until then, just remember, cloud is what happens while IT is making other plans. <laughs> <laughs>